All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called Emission. And Emission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit TechneepFMC.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for oil and gas upstream research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from DOE just over a year ago and founded a small consultancy and then became a podcast host. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to thank Technique FMC, our sponsor. And I want to ask you to do me a big favor by answering one, a one-question survey. It takes about 10 seconds, and the link is in the show notes below. In return, we will happily send you some stickers for your laptop or your hard hat or your kids. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Art Schroeder. Hi, Art. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Lena. It's good to be here. Art is the CEO of Energy Valley, Inc., a company that provides money, marketing, and management to commercialize and advance energy-related technologies. Art has over 30 years' experience in oil and gas. He's also a principal of Safe Marine Transfer, LLC, and we'll ask him more about that in just a moment. Art also has served on numerous professional, corporate, and civic boards and has published over 100 technical papers and has been granted patents on his innovations. Many of you know Art from his work with OTC and know that he was recently awarded a special citation for his work. Art, thank you for for your work with OTC. That's real important to us. Art was graduated from Georgia Tech and with both a BS and an MS in chemical engineering and from the University of Houston, an MBA with a major in finance and international business. So Art, what an impressive background. Wow, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Although you and I know each other from having worked together for many, many years. So right now, tell us about uh, Subsea Shuttle. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I am uh, trying to get the word out about our latest company, Subsea Shuttle. So I appreciate the opportunity to share with you and your listeners uh, uh, Subsea Shuttle's uh, mission, which is to provide chemical injection as a service when and where needed. That's our tagline. Uh, basically, all wells require some sort of chemistry, uh, corrosion control, wax, uh, particularly in deep water, uh, the uh, subsea wells uh, require a lot of times hydrate uh, in, inhibition as well as the wax scale and other types of inhibitors. So supplying those chemicals is critical to the subsea wells staying on production. Um, current technology is using umbilicals, which are a great technology, 
they're expensive and complex. And uh, with our storage of chemicals subsea, immediately adjacent to the point of use, we can actually extend the tieback distance longer further than you can pumping the chemicals through the umbilical tubings. We can lower the cost. We can reduce the host platform space and weight requirements. And importantly, we can also eliminate the hazardous chemical interaction with personnel uh, that takes place in the standard logistics. So instead of supply boats taking production chemicals to the platform, lifting them up on the deck, storing them there and pumping them through an umbilical, we actually take the storage subsea and inject directly into the well or into the flow line. So it's uh, new and different, uh, both from a technology standpoint and a business model onshore. So, Art, that's that's really um, that's really a lot. It's complicated. It's um, important. <laughs> and when I say complicated, I'm only talking about that not everyone who listens to our show is an uh, upstream oil and ba- gas expert. Um, offshore would be, you know, uh, uh, more than that. So maybe we could back up just a little bit sure. and uh, orient us. You're also our first guest on offshore. So orient us a little bit on how onshore, or I should say offshore is different from onshore, kind of that that piece. Um, and then go into what's going on now in that arena with respect to the chemicals. And then help us again connecting uh, what Subsea Shuttle does. That, that, sure. I think that's about right. Thank you. Well, uh, to be clear, at the top of the house, we're into fossil energies, which uh, are very important, have been historically, and I think will be for quite some time. Quite so, some time. Uh, well, probably way past when I'm not here anymore. <laughs> so I don't know how long that is. But today, uh, I think, as uh, geopolitical events are playing out, as they have many times throughout my career, uh, when times get tight, uh, providing heat, light, mobility, and all the things that fossil fuels bring is, is just absolutely critical. So uh, fossil energy, uh, onshore or offshore, is at the reservoirs is pretty much the same. Uh, it's uh, above the reservoir on the surface. Onshore logistics are uh, a, a bit easier because you can drive your pickup truck around the leases and service the wells. So the um, logistics and the uh, are, and the cost are, are considerably lower than they are. Uh, offshore. Uh, we're talking. So, so Art, there is no pickups offshore. So <laughs> there's a different mechanism on the uh, offshore. Yeah, I should also mention, Elena, that um, when I speak about upstream, the reservoir, as opposed to downstream, which is refining, marketing, and retail. So, uh, all of your listeners, I'm sure, uh, even if they drive a Tesla, will remember the days of having to go fill up the tank. So uh, we're, we're in the upstream area uh, exclusively. Some of the technologies do have application downstream, but our focus is on meeting upstream EMP. They call it expiration production. So once you separate the uh, uh, downstream marketing refining from the upstream, uh, which is exploring and producing, then in between connecting those, you have the midstream, which is pipelines uh, as well. So we're upstream, uh, we're offshore, and the big question is how do you access those uh, reserves and produce the 
uh, reservoir. And you're right, uh, we have uh, supply vessels and helicopters as opposed to pickup trucks. Uh, we have very, very expensive real estate that's built to withstand 100-year wave conditions and uh, cost in the billions of dollars are more typical than not in the deep water offshore. So the costs are much higher. The complexities uh, to provide safety for the men and the equipment and the environment out there uh, is also a, another factor coming into every decision you make. And so by real estate, you mean the platforms. Platform. And there's different kinds of platforms the deeper you go into the uh, Gulf of Mexico, for example. Yes. And actually, that's a, a good transition. Uh, when I was uh, at Amico earlier in my career, uh, I ran the offshore uh, construction and offshore engineering for about a decade through the uh, 80s. At that point in time, uh, Cognac Mississippi Canyon 194 was the deepest platform and it was a fixed bottom platform in a thousand feet of water. Most platforms in a couple hundred feet and that's still where the majority of them are but the larger discoveries and newer discoveries are in deeper and deeper water so we have as an industry gone from fixed platforms to floating uh, platforms and then there's a, a couple of different basic types of floating platforms and basically it's the platform the real estate where you operate live and work is tethered to the ocean floor so it stays stationary but it's not grounded with a fixed piece of steel rigid piece of steel so as we went deeper uh, the wells originally that were completed uh, where you can walk up and actually hug the Christmas tree on the platform, <laughs> uh, the, the wells move subsurface, uh, subsea, uh, to basically exploit a wider range of reservoirs around a, a hub platform. So it's that pinpoint, if you will, fossil energy upstream, offshore, subsea, it's where we're focused. So yeah, getting people oriented, it may sound like a very, very narrow niche. And to some extent it is, but it's still a uh, multi hundred billion dollar industry. So it's uh, quite uh, uh, important and delivering the chemicals required to those subsea wells is what our company does. So just before, uh, recent times, let's say, um, the uh, Gulf of Mexico offshore, especially Gulf of Mexico, uh, produced more oil and gas than it had ever. Uh, it was really, really um, high production rates and um, lots of wells and, and really was making a contribution uh, to our overall energy security. So, um, yeah, offshore is a very important part. So, so you talk about chemicals. So why do we need chemicals in offshore wells? And are, do we need chemicals on onshore wells too? Is it just a matter of, I mean, what is the difference? Great question. I, part of it's what we just talked about a minute ago, the logistics. All wells require some sort of chemistry, some more and some different than others, but onshore, uh, uh, the service company, Baker Hughes, Clarion, Malco, Champion, they sell chemicals. Well, they have their tank, the chemical tank, adjacent to the uh, well on shore. The delivery truck drives up to the tank that the service company owns. They fill it up with their chemical. They have a pump and they sell chemical by the gallon to the oil company. 
So it's an OPEX, operational expense, as opposed to capital expense because the service company owns the logistics and the supply chain there. Offshore, it's quite a bit different because you can't just drive a truck up there. The only space offshore is on that platform, which the oil company engineered, designed, built, and owns. So the chemicals of the service company need to actually be stored on the platform. So the operator needs to, in advance, predict how much chemical they'll need, leave space, and have enough strength in the platform to uh, hold up that weight, which can be uh, several hundreds to thousands of tons. So it's it's not insignificant. These, these chemicals, specific gravity of about one, <laughs> like water. So uh, just like a gallon of milk weighs, you know, seven pounds, uh, a gallon of chemical weighs about the same. And if you're using tens of thousands of gallons, that's a lot of weight there. So current uh, business model is the oil company not only owns the platform, but also owns the umbilical. And umbilical is a term that many people are probably not familiar with, but uh, Think of it as a, uh, uh, a bunch of garden hoses, one hose for each chemical uh, with some cables in there for power and also some fiber for communications, all wrapped in a shield. So you've got uh, maybe a, a six to eight to 10 inch uh, piece of over short distances would be fairly rigid type pipe, but it's actually flexible. So it's installed connecting the platform where the chemicals and the power and the communications are with the well subsea, which could be as short as just a mile out. It could be five miles, 10 miles. And in fact, that was one of the triggers for developing our technology was to enable providing the chemistry to the extra long distances. You just sort of can't do it with the current technology. You reach a point where the chemicals, the viscosity of the chemicals going through those tubes is so great and the wellhead pressures are so high, you cannot apply enough pressure at the platform to push the chemicals the 50, 60 miles away and still get into the high pressure reservoirs. So uh, as a stopgap measure, what companies do many times is uh, mix dilutants, viscosity reducers, which can impact the effectiveness of the chemicals, definitely increases the cost. So, so they've tried to do that to go further and further out. If you can't reach those reservoirs, then you're looking at a situation where uh, a reserve a re resources cannot be turned into reserves because they cannot be produced because economically the smaller reservoirs, unless you can tie them back, will just be foregone. So it's part of increasing energy security. Uh, it's part of uh, uh, more jobs, more production, more tax revenue. Uh, a bunch of good things come from being able to reach those distant wells. So, um, when you said tie back those smaller reservoirs, um, that means connecting them to shore, basically, uh, through a series of other connections in between. I don't want to give out the answer. So <laughs> uh, that, that's been a, a sort of a holy grail of uh, subsea to shore. So uh, there, there's a lot of uh, high level discussion about that as a vision of the future from subsea directly to shore. From a practical standpoint, particularly in, in the U.S., 
the distances are, are quite significant. There's already an infrastructure of hub platforms in deep water and then uh, other uh, platforms in shallower water. So we're blessed in this country with a, a, a grid, a network of subsea pipelines that are out there. So when someone talks about tying back a subsea well, uh, almost assuredly, they're talking about tying the subsea well at 10,000 feet water depth with a platform that's also maybe in 5,000, 7,000 feet of water that's maybe 10 or 20 miles away. But they're talking about tying it back to a platform with a flow line. So the flow line is taking the production from the well to the platform, maybe five miles over and then up 5,000 feet uh, with a riser to the platform. The umbilical goes the other way. So it goes from the platform to the subsea well and will deliver again, chemicals, um, power and communications. Uh, it's, it's, there are aspects of the umbilical that will still need to remain the power and the communications, but we can replace the tubes in the umbilical by storing the chemical subsea. And, and the tubes, by the way, these umbilicals cost anywhere from one to maybe two or three million dollars a mile. The tubes represent about 80% of that cost. So if you could remove the tubes and store the chemical subsea, instead of on the platform, then you will uh, reduce the cost of the development significantly. So with respect to the chemicals then and having them stored subsea, there's uh, currently not stored subsea, um, and this is potential to address what's the challenge. What's the challenge? Why, why was this a uh, great innovation? Well, as a businessman, one of the things I try to do is simplify things down to sound bites. <laughs> but if you back up from there, we appreciate that. <laughs> if you back up from there, there's actually some complexity within that. Uh, well, let's do both because we have people who are okay. um, subject matter experts in this area and others who are just getting some exposure here and trying to understand a little bit. Okay. More. So, one of the uh, enabling technologies for our technology is uh, engineered fabric. And the shirts you're wearing, uh, maybe the Gore-Tex raincoat you have, uh, varying degrees of engineering go into that fabric. Uh, tires on your automobile, whether they're on a Ferrari or a Chevy pickup truck, uh, are engineered sort of fit for purpose. So many of us in the oil industry uh, are not really, except from everyday life, and maybe with engineered fabrics, we don't think about them. We think about high carbon steel, uh, stainless steels, and uh, those type materials where we cut them with a cutting torch and weld them together with a welding rod. That's what we're used to. But uh, engineered fabric uh, go into the space shuttle, the suits that the astronauts wear, uh, jet fighter pilots, uh, Zodiac life rafts and airplanes. I mean, there's a lot of uses for engineered fabrics. So uh, working with a, uh, a great little contractor down on the Gulf Coast that provides engineered fabrics for the U.S. Navy, we worked with them and others to develop an uh, engineered fabric that uh, is resistant to the chemicals and uh, pliable enough to have some, robust enough to have some uh, service life associated with filling, depleting, filling, depleting, if you can imagine 
the bags being filled and depleted. One of the reasons why we're using the engineered fabric is uh, these large volumes at 10,000 feet, basically a rule of thumb is if you have 10,000 feet, the pressure is a little less than half that. Uh, so 10,000 feet, you're at about 4,500 pounds of pressure. So you can imagine a big volume of chemicals stored where it's exposed to 4,500 or more pounds. Uh, you might think like a submarine, it, it needs to be very, very thick walled. And it would, except for engineered fabric. Because what we do is uh, place uh, uh, the engineered fabric inside the hard outer shell. And as the chemical which is in the engineered fabric depletes, the annulus space between the bladder, the engineered fabric, and the hard outer shell starts to fill with seawater. So we're able to provide a dual barrier, both the engineered fabric and the hard outer shell, as uh, to isolate the chemicals uh, from the environment. So it's, it's that technology that allows us to go with uh, thinner and the order of magnitudes of three-eighths uh, quarter-inch uh, type outside hard vessel. And inside, the bladder is deforming. Uh, I, I, I know some of our audience uh, enjoys wine. If they ever tried uh, wine in a box, <laughs> uh, you've got a plastic engineered fabric inside the box that contains the wine. Then you've got the hard cardboard box as an outer shell. Uh, as the wine is dispensed through the nozzle, um, air, of course, around the uh, engineered fabric, the bladder, the wine container actually collapses inside the box. So the box stays rigid. And with uh, the wine and air example, you've got a specific gravity of one of the liquid, the wine, and you've got it surrounded by air. So there's a huge differential across the fabric there as far as driving the fabric to uh, push or uh, dis, uh, produce the wine out of the dispenser. If you can imagine if you had uh, liquid around the wine instead of air and the specific gravities of seawater, maybe 1.1, and the specific gravity to chemical of 1, uh, there's very small differential there. So the fabric can tend to deflate in a random chaotic type manner. It's not driven like gravity would in the wine in a box scenario. So figuring that out as far as how to deplete the bladder in an efficient, effective, and repeatable manner uh, is part of what we have. Uh, we have issued now about 50 Five zero patents around our innovation. So uh, it's taken a lot of work. We uh, started this in 2012 and started out focused on chemicals. We were fortunate enough to have uh, Deep Star, an industry consortium. We, in 2012, were fortunate to have uh, both Deep Star funding, some industry funding, and then importantly, uh, a few years before that time, uh, the Department of Energy through NETL had actually uh, worked with a private organization called REPSI, Research Partnership to Secure Energy for America. Uh, what an acronym, huh? Uh, 
in any event. Energy for America. Yes. That's the important part. Yeah, this it's actually part of the uh, 2005 Energy uh, Policy Act, and I believe you were part of that, weren't you not? Yes, I was. We can talk about that later, though. Okay. But I was, I was honored, honored to serve, honored to serve. Well, I was uh, pleased to be uh, part of that effort, and uh, I, the idea of taking a portion of the revenues coming from offshore lease sales and reinvesting that in technology to improve energy security, jobs, payroll taxes, uh, the whole nine yards. Uh, anyway, we were able to put some of those funds to work and got the technology up to about a technology readiness level of three to four, depending on your scale. Zero would be, I had a good idea this morning in the shower. <laughs> A uh, 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 seven is uh, it's, it's commercialized and ready on the shelf uh, to be used in uh, commerce. So we were not at that point, but we were fortunate to have uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway company come in and uh, liked what we were doing and basically turned our focus to drag reduction agents, which is a whole other story. Uh, then in 2019, Subsea7 bought a piece of the company and uh, accelerated that effort. But when Subsea7 came in, we actually formed Subsea Shuttle in 2019 at that time. And the idea was to go back to the production chemicals, which is really where we started, and take that technology and mature it to a TRL6 ready for commercial use. So we're in the process of doing that now. We have built a full-size uh, prototype and have tested it in a test pool, completely submerged underwater, and have uh, great results to date. And are working with various customer groups to move the technology to offshore. Excellent, excellent. So just to recap a little bit, the umbilicals um, still have the communication and the power but now you can separate that from the chemical, and the chemical has its own, what, tap into the well? How does, what's that little connection? Yeah, that's a, a great question. That's part of when you simplify it. Uh, okay, now how exactly does that work? I, the umbilical, which now has the tubes delivering the chemicals, uh, lands or ends or terminates at a UTA, um, umbilical termination assembly. And that assembly where the end of the hose with the tubes and the wires end separates out the chemicals from the power and from the communications at that UTA. So at that UTA, the chemicals are injected both into the um, flow line for uh, corrosion, hydrate, mitigation, and flow line, as well as into the well. So there are ports, uh, injection ports, uh, already there. And we would use those same injection ports for ours instead of coming 20 or 30 or 50 miles through an umbilical, it would come from a, a small, short, uh, not a small, but a short jumper, maybe a couple hundred feet away and injected straight into the flow line or the wellhead. The power is still going to be required. Uh, some chemicals are injected continuously and some are injected intermittently. So for intermittent chemicals, you could think about batteries, but for constant uh, injection, you need power constantly. 
There are some uh, remote power buoys and other technologies that are being developed that we will provide a pull for the development of those to be able to eliminate the umbilical altogether. But for the intermediate near term, surely the next 10 years, most of the power will still be through the umbilical, but at 10% or 20% of the cost. So power and the comps will come through that cable. Thank you. Wow. What an exciting technology from space age fabrics to uh, wine in a box to <laughs> energy security. <laughs> it's all one thing. Well, you just never know where the good ideas and the new technologies are kind of come from. I, I did want to comment on the Energy Policy Act of 2005. That was, as you said, where the federal government, the Congress voted to take uh, monies, royalties, and rents that were collected by the Department of Interior and give them to the Department of en Energy for investment in upstream oil and gas research and technologies. And it was those technologies that we first uh, invested in in 2007-2008 that have brought forward um, applications such as um, uh, shale development uh, when the industry put uh, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing together and really brought us into the energy security that we enjoyed uh, not too long ago. And now with Offshore, you've, take, you've showed the story of what the idea is. Maybe you did get that idea from a wine box, I don't know, but, but it's a great idea and took it through the TRLs and now you're ready to, to launch. I mean, that's, that's such an exciting, fabulous story. Do you want to share some more about that? I, uh, what I'd like to do is uh, shift a little bit in that um, I, Amico was a great company. They hired both my wife and I, chemical engineers, and uh, just a lot of great training there. Uh, d diversity was not only in spouses working together, but diversity was in different thought processes. And my uh, the last boss I had there uh, sent me to business school to pick up an MBA. And coming out of that, it really opened the aperture, if you will, to where new ideas could come from. And I've been one for lifelong continuous education has been one of my mantras, and I, I love it. I so in the MBA class, it turned out one of the uh, the dean of the engineering school at Rice, and I also uh, knew the dean of the business school there. So we formed the Rice Alliance in 2000, and that has gone on with lots and lots of help from lots and lots of other people. But we have funded companies that have gone on to raise uh, roughly $7 billion. So these are startup companies that come in and pitch their ideas. And these are real ideas, teams that really take them on and then raise money and put products and services in the marketplace. But the thing that has struck me with participating in that for the 21 years is that all these different industries from IT, uh, fintech, uh, medical technologies, they, they all have some basic business principles and issues around the commercialization and successful launch of these. One, one is how to raise the money, uh, two, how to protect your IP, uh, creating a management structure. 
So I have really benefited tremendously from the Rice Alliance, uh, listening to other startup companies. And then we have them come back after uh, five or seven years and, and give us the rest of the story. So uh, both Repsi and DeepStar to begin with, working with both big companies, but more with Rice working with small companies, uh, helping companies grow has uh, really uh, helped show me paths I wouldn't have found if I'd stayed just stuck in the same sort of tunnel vision. So uh, I would uh, sort of pass that on to folks that uh, look for opportunities to get involved, sometimes outside your immediate sphere and, and continue and invest in yourself, invest in continuing education. Um, the other thing you talked about the Energy Policy Act in 2000, one of the things I did was uh, a buddy of mine was uh, in the department at the time and introduced me to my uh, senator, <laughs> Kay Bailey Hutchinson, <laughs> who I, I was from the great state of Texas and has spent 200 or more days for 10 years outside the country traveling and just really didn't pay much attention to what was going on at home. But when I started my own company in 2000, decided I, I needed to get more involved and did a bunch of mall crawls, uh, uh, meeting congressional reps and their staffers and uh, uh, agencies, the uh, Department of Interior, as well as uh, uh, Energy, and then actually did some work with the Department of Defense, too, that was quite interesting. So I would say policy matters. Uh, great technology, but without the right policy to support it, it ain't going to go anywhere. And policy without technology, if you can't cannot implement it, uh, isn't too valuable either. So it's a combination of policy and technology. And then uh, I guess recently it's come to mind that uh, a lot of people question the free markets. And I, I believe those are fundamental to success uh, around the world. I think we've had examples on both sides where it doesn't work and where it does work. Uh, and I would encourage uh, your listeners to uh, pay attention to policy as well as the, while they work on the technology, get involved. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that path, uh, that path less taken by, or whatever that poem goes. <laughs> right. Say it correctly for me. I'm messing it up here. <laughs> the path less taken. No, right. the, the road not taken. Right. Well, uh, I'll look it up. <laughs> hopefully, I mean, uh, as we're recording this uh, election day tomorrow, uh, there's a, a chance to you, you. You may like not like the, the the options presented to you, but you need to pick one. Need to pick one. That's right. right. That's and, right. And then next time, work to make sure there are the options you want to see. They're on the ballot. <laughs> there you go. There you involved. go. Get involved. Yes, Get involved. Absolutely. Well, I'm from California, so um, energy uh, has a, a certain meaning there. And it wasn't until I moved to Washington that I understood that, you know, this country was uh, really diverse in the point of views, points of view that it had. And then I had the privilege of working uh, internationally, um, South America, Latin America, well, the whole Western Hemisphere. But that's when I really realized um, how important energy is just for a person's life that we take energy so for granted and that the, well, you shared this with me, that the wealth of a nation is tied to its natural resources. I, and 
I worked uh, Venezuela uh, back in the 90s and got an opportunity to work with Luis Gusti, who ran Petavesa. And later on, when I was doing some work for the uh, DOD, I got a chance to run into him again after things started cratering in Venezuela. And it, it was, you could just see the passion and the fire in his eyes as far as we can, we can be great again. We've got the resources there. We have the intellectual firepower. All we've got is the wrong policy. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the resources are still there, but the talent, a lot of it has left. Um, if, they, if they can't thrive and be productive, uh, at least, as opposed to being repressed, uh, they got out of Venezuela. And so uh, policy makes a huge difference. The resources are still there with the right leadership. Uh, it will again attract, and the right policies, it will again attract the uh, talent. And I'm hopeful that the U.S. Uh, continues on the all of the above, truly, with the advances made in energy storage. Uh, wind and sunshine are, are great, and we've made a lot of um, strides in those areas to bring the cost down, but you, you need a, a way to store that because the breeze doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine all the time. So being able to store that energy uh, is, is critical. And I think it's going to be a, something past current lithium craze because uh, you look at all the uh, issues and where the lithium is to start with and then developing it. Uh, but I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, we will and the free market prevail and come rise to the occasion and supply energy through all of the above, including nuclear. That's right. That's right. All of the above. So the, um, we are running long, Art, and so I may cut some of this, um, uh, some of our opinions out of it, but I'll have, I'll see how it all fits together. I'll okay. see it together. So I think I'll go ahead and move to, um, to toward our close. Okay. Well, Art, what a wonderful, wonderful conversation we've had. I'm sorry we are going to have to close out now. It's it's so exciting that um, we can take an idea from the shower and turn it into something real that makes a contribution to society, especially um, with uh, energy. I so appreciate you joining me today. Um, do you have any last uh, items you'd like to share? I... I do. I think uh, a commitment to lifelong learning, uh, whether it's uh, going back to school formally or whether it's uh, virtual learning or whether it's listening to your podcast. I, I think uh, it's important that we continue to challenge ourselves with the uh, big challenges and energy is certainly a very important challenge for us to correctly tackle. Thank you. And thank you for the challenge of the podcast. It is, it is a little bit challenging. It's a little bit scary, but I, I'm getting a little more comfortable with it. But I, but I thank you for that. You're doing great. Thank you. So Art Schroeder, thank you so much for being our guest today and for sharing all about your contributions to upstream oil and gas, especially offshore. Um, and I want to thank everyone for listening today. Uh, please give us a review and tell us what you'd like to hear more about and, uh, on future podcasts. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. <laughs>